Okay. Good morning, everyone. If you're still getting your coffee, please um, do sort that out. Uh, we are someone in the audience said, hurry up. You can do that as well. Um, but we're starting up. We're into week eight of our sermon series, and uh, we're, we're looking at another one of um, the, the commandments that God has given um, to us, his people. Um, and this is a commandment that he's given to us about the way that we engage with each other. For those of you that haven't met me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here at Real Life Church. I'm married to Becky, who's just run out to get a coffee, um, or perhaps to call everyone in. Um, and we have three children, two of which are, are here in youth and, um, and, um, and, and kids' work. Um, yeah, so anyway, we're in to this next commandment. And I just wanted to remind you, when you look at any one of those commandments, you always need to bear in mind the context of the whole two tablets. And it's so important because otherwise we get wrapped up in kind of making our own assumptions about what that commandment means by reading the four or five words that are in that little piece without understanding the whole teaching of God and without understanding the meta-narrative of the, the Bible. So Stuart's done a, a really good job of, of keeping us on point, making sure that we understand um, what the commandments are, um, when they arrived, how Moses got them, and the context of that. That's really important to bear in mind. And uh, I'm not going to repeat that, but if you have missed any of those sermons, please do pick them up online. If you go to uh, findreallife.org.uk, you will find them there. Or is it co.uk? I think it's at the bottom there, co.uk. There we go. Um, but what I do want to do is pull out a, a couple of things. And the one thing is that meta-narrative, the overarching story of the Bible. We talk about God creating everything. And when he created it all, it was good. And then there's the story of the fall and people and um, the flood and Abraham and Moses and Jesus and the church and then Christ returning and all of creation being restored to perfection and us living in eternity with our King face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the meta-narrative of the Bible, and we need to always keep that in mind, and it's a beautiful one. And something that stands out for me in the meta-narrative is from beginning to end, the created order, the physical stuff, the tangible universe is good, and it remains. Our ideal spiritual destination is not ethereal. It's not divorced of the physical world. God loves what he has made, and it's here to stay. It's going to be here forever. An example um, of misunderstanding that comes from not understanding the meta-narrative of the Bible is, is that people come up with false dichotomies, or they think that things like the law and grace are diametrically opposed to each other, like God worked in law in the Old Testament, and then he works in grace in the New Testament, and you can't have the one working with the other. But when you read the whole Bible, you see that grace was there before law. And you see that law always worked hand in hand with grace to do a number of things. They worked hand in hand to achieve the same goal of um, creating a, or, or bringing a people together for God out of all people who will glorify him for all eternity. 
So when we approach the Ten Commandments, it's important to have that in view. It's important to remember that, um, that, that, that the law was not given as a way of earning approval from God, even when it was given. It was given to a people who were already freed by God from Egypt and were already led out of slavery into freedom and into his blessings, and they'd already experienced miracles. They'd already experienced his provision. They've already experienced his presence, and there he puts in the law, not as a way of earning his approval, but as a way of living as God's people. And that's the context that this eighth commandment is in. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had um, the privilege of watching Lemmers with Joel and Caitlin. It's not the first time that I've watched it, and it probably won't be the last. I personally prefer the West End version, but there's something about the cinema version with Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe which just helps you to more easily grasp the storyline, and it's a massive, sad, joyful storyline, isn't it? What? How did that get in there? Sorry. (laughs) I suppose there's a loose connection. Oh, yeah. Um, Right, maybe just flick to the next one. There's there's a link. It's tenuous, but (laughs) there is a link. Um, Sorry for that. Didn't mean to offend anyone in the audience. Anyway. It's a massive, sad, joyful storyline. And um, I don't want to give away too much because there may be some of you that haven't um, been able to watch it, but you must. If you do watch the cinema version, you will quickly get over the less than excellent singing of every line, and um, you'll get caught up in the story which resonates with all of our hearts. It's the story of a thief who's come to the end of his sentence, and his captor, who reminds him that he will never be able to erase the memory of his crime. It's the story of a a priest who takes pity on that thief and teaches him about redemption. It's a story about greed and abuse. It's a story of a man who gives everything to save the life of another person's child. It's a story which challenges us to decide whose side we're on the cold, hard law, or the hard done by thief. And at the end, we're left kind of thinking, who has, who did actually learn the meaning of the law? Was it Jean Valjean or Javert? And I'll come back to Lemmers in a, a little while. But the text that we have to look at today is a very short one. Four words, you shall not steal. That seems fairly obvious. That's what we have to work with this week. You shall not steal. You're all probably thinking, well then, this will be a quick one. He's probably emotionally spent from yesterday's match and he just wants to finish up the sermon and get home and have a sleep. Our initial view of this commandment is because we look at it, we go, well, finally, a a little bit of wiggle room. Every other commandment has been very challenging for, for most of us. Um, And this is fairly easy. Most of us would say, yeah, we know that it is wrong to steal. And the majority of us would say that we don't violate the Eighth Commandment. 
And I'm not just saying that because it's my opinion. A, a survey taken by the Barna Group in the US um, revealed that 86% of adults claimed that they completely satisfied God's requirement of abstinence from stealing. Completely. So most of us think that this commandment has very little to say to us. If you are a thief, if you have been stealing, naughty boy, naughty lady, why did you do that? We, we feel that we're somehow um, sorted in this one. But there's so much more to these few words that we need to look at. So just a reminder, the Eighth Commandment is in the second tablet of the law. It's the, it's the six laws that deal with how we are to relate to each other, and it comes immediately after you shall not commit adultery, and immediately before you shall not lie. And in a very real sense, it's related to both, because adultery, as we've learned, is stealing of purity, and um, lying is stealing truth. In fact, stealing can be applied to all of the commandments, to every single one, whether you're stealing God's glory or God's day or you're stealing with the eyes of your heart. All of them result in some form of theft. Over the last few weeks, we've been using the, the what, how, why structure to look at each of these commandments and kind of break them down and understand them more carefully. I'm not going to do that this week. I'm rather going to look at two questions that the Heidelberg Catechism asks about this particular commandment. The how, what, why is in there, um, but a, a slightly different way of, of structuring it. And the first question is, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And the second question simply is, what does God require in the Eighth Commandment? So first off, let's look at that first question. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? The Hebrew word for stealing is, is ganaf, G-A-N-A-F, anglicized. It literally means to carry something away as if by stealth. So a sneaky little thief. More technically, to steal is to appropriate someone else's property unlawfully. And at first it seems quite simple, but like all of God's laws, we've found out that um, this law is actually a lot more comprehensive. When we see the word stealing, we look at where that word is applied throughout the Bible and we see that it applies to a, a lot of other situations. And I'm going to list just a few of those. Ganaf covers all of the conventional types of, of theft that we, we, we think of, like burglary and robbery and, and hijacking and shoplifting and pickpocketing and purse snatching. But it also covers a, a wide range of more exotic and, and complex thefts um, that maybe some of us are, are more guilty of, such as embezzlement or extortion or blackmail and other forms of racketeering. Actually, I hope none of you are actually guilty of any of those, but it covers all of that stuff. So all of that organized crime or white-collar crime that we, we talk about. So if we look at a couple of examples out of the word, it forbids outright theft and robbery. If we think about Rachel, she stole her father's household gods. He was guilty of a, another sin in having household gods, but she, was, she stole his household gods, and that was 
judged as unlawful. Achan, a famous guy who, uh, when, when Israel went and plundered Jericho, the, it was, it was to, all the plunder was to be made holy. None of it was to be taken as spoils of war. No one was to keep that stuff, but he stole some of that. And the result of his theft was his death. God found his son out, and he was stoned. Ahab and Jezebel stole Nahor's field. It also prohibits the, the unlawful taking of, of people. Um, we might sometimes think that the Bible could go further in making it explicit that slavery is wrong, but it does go a long way. And a lot of what we've experienced in this century as slavery, uh, sorry, in, in um, yeah, the, the 18s and 1900s of slavery is, is, is forbidden by the Bible. It says in, in Exodus um, 21 verse 16, quite clearly, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So slavery is theft and it is forbidden by the law. Remember that Israel was freed from slavery and it was to remain a free people and so they were not to enslave each other ever again. It also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes which seem to be legitimate. Um, there's, a, there's a famous painting. Um, it looks like a Norman Rockwell, but I don't think it is. And it's, it's a, a painting of a, a butcher and a, a lovely, uh, well-to-do lady in a kind of pristine, perfect American uh, scene where he is selling her a festive bird, it's probably a turkey, and it's on a scale. And they both got this really happy smile on their faces, like life is good and they're getting a good deal. But when you look closely at the painting, which seems in all ways innocuous, just completely a, a, a lovely scene, you look carefully and you see that the butcher's got his fat thumb under the, the one side of the scale, pushing the bird down so that he, he's getting a, a better price for his bird. But the, the lovely lady, as well, is, is pushing down on the same side of the scale with her finger to try and get the best deal she can for the bird. So they both think they're getting a good deal, not realizing that they're both trying to swindle each other, trying to get a little bit more for their, their product. And the word of God is, is clear that inaccurate measures are, are forbidden. They're a form of, of theft. And that doesn't just go to an individual level. This works for us on, on a global level as well. When we talk about global injustice, that's theft. A small minority using the vast majority of the world's resources and doing everything they can to protect their advantage. When the Bible teaches that the poor need our help, at least within the community of God, that's what we're taught. We're not to take advantage of their situation we're not to take their resources, we're to help them. If you want to read a little more about that, Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 38, or Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 8. Have a read of those. It also includes selling through misrepresentation or in enticing people to buy something that's not good for them. I know, I know, I don't know about in this room, but I know many Christians who are in marketing and advertising and PR and comms, and these are not bad professions to be in, 
But I think we do need to ask ourselves as believers, am I creating a desire for something that is unnecessary or unhelpful? And how do I live in, in that world where, where sometimes that's what is done? It also includes counterfeit money, um, which in this day and age may not be um, actual printed notes that are fake. It could be something like bouncing checks or rolling credit cards because you have no intention of paying at the end of the day or you don't have any way of paying, so you kind of delay the inevitable by um, paying with something that isn't yours. It includes the empty promise of gambling. If you think about gambling, the whole experience is predicated by uh, the majority of people losing not just some money, losing lots of money. Their money is just disappearing, and all you're getting for it is an experience. It covers cheating the government through refusing to pay or cheating on your taxes. It covers cheating employees out of wages. James 5 verse 4 is very clear about that. Trying to find a reason to withhold payment, even a justifiable reason like, oh, you went on your lunch break too long or the work that you did for me was not up to snuff. Um, Just looking for a way of avoiding paying somebody what they were promised by you for the work that they were doing. That is stealing. Demanding longer hours than their contracts allow is stealing. Restructuring or improving profitability, sorry, restructuring to improve profitability, but then overloading the staff that are left with the work that the others did is stealing. It includes insurance fraud, false claims. It includes plagiarism. It includes online piracy. Do you know that um, the most pirated movie when it came out was The Passion of the Christ? Something weird there. Just one example of, of what we think of as a harmless crime, petty theft. One hotel reported that in its first year of business, it had to replace 38,000 spoons. It had to replace 18,000, not towels, but tiles. 18,000 tiles. It had to replace 355 coffee pots and 100 Bibles. In its first year, of business. Stealing's not a victimless crime. There are some products that you and I buy that have up to one-third surcharge on top of the price that accounts for all of the theft that they have to cover in the sales price of the products that they sell. Theft affects every single one of us in many different ways every day of our lives. This word also forbids all greed and squandering of God's gifts. Try and think, if you want to, uh, 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 of greed as, as stealing with the eyes of your heart. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10 says, the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. So perhaps, maybe at the beginning of the list you thought, so far, so good making it through, but by the end of the list, 
And this is the way of God's law. By the end of the list, you know that we are all guilty. We are all guilty. Um, Martin Luther said that, that if we were, if, um, what did he say? He said that the number of thieves that were charged with theft were the minority. If all that were guilty of theft were charged, there would not be enough rope in the world to hang them. We would all need to take off our belts and halters to, to be hung with them. What was his point? We're all guilty. Mankind is a den of thieves. The Bible warns us against thinking that life consists of one's possessions. Luke 12, verse 13, verse 15, 13 through to 15 says, Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that's what it boils down to at the end of the day, greed. Greed has consequences, and no one is immune to them. And you know what? For each and every one of us, give it enough time and we'll all face the temptation to put profit before people and principles. Whether that's wasting your employer's time, slacking off during work hours, perhaps fudging your expenses, giving away product, or whether it's extracting wealth from a developing country. When we give anything less than our best efforts to our employers, when we, when we don't give them the productivity that we owe them, we are stealing from them. On top of that, the Eighth Commandment also forbids an attitude. It forbids an attitude that says, somebody else will take care of me or take care of this and provide. There will come a check from somebody else to sort out my expenses. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thankful for all the different avenues of help that we have available in today's society when we are in need, when there are cracks to fill. But it is robbery to take what does not belong to you when there's an opportunity for you to work and to not waste. Another way to steal from God is to fail to give Him the best of our time and our talents. Think about it for a moment. All of our abilities and opportunities come from God. He has given them to us, and they're all to be used for His glory. So when we waste our time or we fail to develop our gifts to the highest potential, we are robbing God. So as we can see, the trouble with stealing is that nearly everyone is doing it. I would say everybody is doing it. Yet nearly 90% of evangelical Christians claim that they never break the Eighth Commandment. What that shows is that Christians have forgotten what stealing really is. And I guess if we're all doing it, the next question to ask is then maybe what's wrong with it? If that's the way as a society we get to survive and it's all a bit of one-upmanship and everyone's a mark, um, maybe there's nothing wrong with it. And I think um, that is the danger in today's world, that we start thinking that it's not that serious. 
unless it is that kind of violent theft, burglary or robbery or hijacking. Those are bad. But all this other stuff that we've been talking about, not so bad, not so serious. That's just the way of the world. That's the way we run our economy. That's the way we make sure that we've got enough to live and I've got to look after my family. But there's another way to look at it, and it's the, the biblical way. Whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, however we do it, we are sinning against God as well as our neighbor. And we're sinning against God in at least two ways. Firstly, it's a failure to trust in God's provision. Whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, we are denying that God is able to give us or that he has given us everything that we truly need. We're saying that his best is not good enough and we need to go and get something else. It's a denial of his provision. Therefore, keeping the Eighth Commandment is actually a practical exercise of our faith in God's providence. And then in a second way, it robs what God has provided for someone else. Everyone has anything because God has given it to them. And we don't have the right to take for ourselves what God has given to others. So there's two reasons why stealing is wrong in the first place. Because it denies our faith in God and his ability to provide for us. The Heidelberg Catechism then goes on and it asks us, Right, we know what God forbids. What then does God require of you in this commandment? It's not simply about refraining from stealing, but to have a spirit of generosity so that we love to give things and help those in need. This is, a, this is a positive expression. We've, we've seen that every commandment has a, a negative and a positive way of being stated. Some are stated explicitly negatively, and some are stated explicitly positively, but, both, but, but all have both implications. So if we stated this commandment uh, positively, it would be, you shall be generous. You as a people shall be generous. And I just want to make a point here. The whole idea of stealing, the whole idea that you can take someone else's stuff, and the whole idea that you can give your own stuff um, implies that private property is something that, that God regards as important. If we look at the way he talks about property through, through the Bible, um, he talks about it being given to you, you owning it. The, the, the wealth of Israel was one of their covenant blessings it was counted as a blessing. They owned that stuff. It was theirs. I just wanted to make a sort of side point that as we talk about generosity, the Bible doesn't, doesn't promote a politic. It doesn't promote capitalism. It doesn't promote socialism or communism or, or democracy. It doesn't promote those. What it does promote is a communal attitude. That's very different. And it, it's, we need to be very careful when we talk about this stuff that we don't, don't hope to attach what God has taught us to our own personal political or socio-political preference. 
We have people with socialist viewpoints. We have people with capitalist viewpoints who all love God very much and can be remarkably generous with their stuff. God doesn't say one or the other is wrong. What he talks about is a communal attitude through the Bible. Some examples of that are, as I said, the the national prosperity of Israel. Job. Job gave to the poor, and at the same time, he wasn't at all offended when his children used his resources to feast and enjoy life. When Jesus motivated his disciples to give stuff away, it wasn't because stuff was bad and they should live with a sort of a a zen-like relationship with the world. It was so that they would get even more in the age to come. They would inherit more and better stuff. What the Bible means by ownership is, is not possessing things to use for our own purposes, but rather receiving things from God to be used for His glory. That's the way the Bible looks at possessions, ownership, private property. So at the same time that we are forbidden to take things that don't belong to us, we are required to use what we have in ways that are pleasing to our God. The Eighth Commandment isn't just about stealing, it's about stewardship. And there's a a couple of ways I want to look at um, that that sort of frame or define what good stewardship is. Good stewardship means taking care of what we have been given. It means not letting things fall into disrepair. It means not being wasteful. Whenever we we squander money on something that could have been um, on something that could have been spent better elsewhere, on something else then we are guilty of theft. I think in contemporary society, something that's, that's come up recently, fast fashion. The idea of buying something to wear it once and throw it away. Bad stewardship. Do we really put, attach so much attention to how we appear for one occasion? Do we put so much importance on that that we disregard the enormous amount of waste in the system to get us the opportunity to buy that garment and wear it once? So we need to be good stewards. Even if you talk about how you look after your household budget, what you spend on groceries, what you spend on on television and communications and all of that stuff, how do you look after your own personal budget? Have any of you thought, well, this is exactly how much I need to spend to get by as an individual or as a family, and I'm going to ring fence that. And if I get an increase... That doesn't mean I'm going to increase my spending, but I'm going to ring fence what God has given me that will cover what I need, and I'm going to be responsible for that. I'm not going to waste. Don't waste. Good stewardship is about being, take, taking care of what you've been given. Another aspect of good stewardship is, is also hard work. Now, I'm trying to approach this sensitively, and I know that there are are occasions when this is legitimately not possible, but Proverbs teaches that in general, laziness leads to poverty. In general, laziness leads to poverty, Proverbs 6 verses 10 to 11, and that poverty in turn brings the temptation to steal. And we saw that in Lemez. This wasn't grand larceny, 
He wasn't stealing from the coffers of the state. He stole a loaf of bread because he was hungry. And he had to endure the full force of the law. He was tempted to do something that legitimately was against the law. We may look at it and go, well, that's not really fair. All he wanted was a loaf of bread to feed himself and his family. One way to avoid this temptation, generally, is to work hard for honest gain, with the goal of becoming financially independent. Now, some of you love your job. Some of you honestly think it's a soul-destroying dead end. And we can talk for days on a theology of work and how work is a blessing from God, because it is. But one of the reasons we work, regardless of whether we love it or we hate it, one of the reasons is that we have something to share with others. We look after ourselves and we have something to share with others when they are in need. That is one of the reasons that we, as God's people, work. Third aspect of being a good steward is this, then, that you distribute wisely. You give away what God has given to you so that other people will have what they need. There were three basic attitudes I picked up um, in some of my research towards possessions, and the first one is, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. And that's the attitude of a thief. Everyone's a mark. Every, every situation is an opportunity for gain. Um, how can I get the most out of that person? If I have a relationship with someone and I'm not getting stuff from them, then that relationship is without purpose and I'm going to move on to someone else. What's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. It can be in relationships, the way you treat people. It can be in possessions. The second attitude is what's mine is mine. I'll keep it. And let's be honest, for most of us, most of the time, this is our attitude. I know I'm a mark. I know everyone's out to get my cash or to get my time or to get my emotional energy or to get me to invest in them only to realize that I've been taken for a fool. So I'm going to hold on to what is mine and not give to anyone. But the third attitude the godly attitude is, what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. What's mine is God's, and I'll share it. Christians are called to live generously. We do not work simply to satisfy our own desires, but also to provide for others. Good stewardship starts with meeting the needs of our families. Then it extends to the church and to the global work of the gospel. And it reaches out to the poor in our own communities and around the world. But I guess the question is, where can we start? What can we do? How can we apply this? We, we've kind of got what this commandment says to us. And before anything, I just want to say to you that you're an amazingly generous group of people. I don't think that um, we're starting from scratch here. What you gave to the work of Catalyst around the world and for Andy and Heather Martin was tremendously generous. 
I believe that for the most part, I'm talking to a people whose hearts are for God. Your hearts are for God's people, for his glory, and you care deeply for those that are in need. However, I know my heart, and I know how deceitful my heart can be and how fickle it can be. I know that one moment I'm generous, and the next I'm highly protective of my stuff. I know that sometimes I look at what I have and panic, generally around the 20th, because it doesn't seem to be enough. And sometimes, only sometimes, I look at what other people have, and for the briefest of moments, I think, they've got enough of that. Surely I can get some. Just for the briefest of moments. And I know it's not just me. Well, maybe it is. I'm fairly certain it's not just me. So from, from one sinner to another, I'd like to extend some practical advice. Where your treasure is, your heart will also be. I know we all know that. We quote it. Can I just say that the, um, that the reverse is also true? Where your treasure goes, your heart tends to follow. If you put all of your treasure into your stuff, into your toys, your man cave, your exercise room, your car, your house, then your heart is going to go there. That's where your heart is going to give its attention. So if you're having, just a suggestion, if you're having a hard time getting your heart in the right place, then could I suggest that you think about sending your money ahead of your heart? Put your treasures somewhere where you want your heart to go. If you put your treasures there, if you give generously where God is asking you to give, you'll find that your heart becomes more and more interested in that. And then secondly, I guess the reason lemmas resonate so strongly with Christians is that it echoes our own journey. We're all thieves. We all deserve the full force of the law. However, we sometimes feel that perhaps we are being judged too harshly, that there are others that have done way worse things, that we were just trying to survive. We were just trying to put bread on the table. We've all experienced grace. We've all met someone like that priest that taught us about grace. We've all met Christ who walked into our darkness and rescued us from the punishment we deserve. We all get to see that everything we now have is owed to him, that none of it can be claimed by us as rightfully deserved, that he has claimed our lives and he has claimed our possessions. And now we get to throw ourselves into using his, his good gifts to glorify him and to lift up those who need us. The desire for security is not bad. The desire for possessions is not bad. The desire for joy is not bad. But Jesus tells us not to be foolish with those desires. Think about what really matters. Think about how to make it last. Peter gives us a, a, a massive promise in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 4. He says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If any wealth manager came to you and gave you that promise, you would be skeptical. But if it was proved to be true, you'd be over the moon. And this is the promise that Christ gives you, that he has for you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Store up riches in heaven, where moth and rust don't have their way. And finally, uh, an encouragement for us. When we look to the end of Jesus' time on earth, we see that he breathed his last between two thieves. One turned to Jesus and said, we are receiving the due reward for, of our deeds. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gives him the answer that he gives to every lawbreaker who turns to him in repentance and faith. He said this, he said, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He had completely fulfilled the requirements of the Eighth Commandment. He did not steal in any way, shape, or form, and he was generous. He was so generous that he took his place as a thief between two others and died in the place of all thieves for all time, including us. Some of you this morning, sorry guys, can the worship team come up please? Some of you this morning may be one of those two thieves. My question to you is, will you be the one who looks at Jesus and confesses that you're a sinner? Acknowledges that you're getting the due reward of your deeds. You're justly judged. And will you ask him to have mercy on you? Will you ask him to remember you as he is in his kingdom? If you will, I want to say to you that Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And if you will, I would suggest that you speak to someone today that you trust as we close. Tell them what you've decided. Let them pray with you. And then some of you this morning are like me. You're sometimes generous, but in your heart you know that you're more like a thief most of the time. Let us pray together that God helps us to understand more and more where all of our stuff comes from, whose it actually is. Let's pray that he'll help us to trust in his providence. And let's pray that he would teach us to desire less for ourselves and more for others. That would be a, a better reflection of him in our daily lives. So Lord, I just want to thank you. Guys, can we stand? Lord, I want to thank you that that you are the fulfillment of the law, that you are the fulfillment of the whole law. 
And this part of the moral law that we're looking at today, where we look at stealing, Lord, I know that for most of us, we've been in a place where we feel like like we, we just need to make our way in the world. That we find ourselves so often in situations, and, and I've felt it, I know all of us have felt it, where we've felt a pricking of conscience, where, conscience, where we know we're in a, a situation that we, we, we just don't know what to do. What is the right thing to do? Whether it's doing something for our employer or doing something to make it through the month. We do something or we're tempted to do something that it just feels like it goes against you and your law. That it pushes against our faith in your providence and your ability to provide for us. And Lord, I ask right now that you come and you speak to each and every one of our hearts. That you remind us of how great the work is that you completed at the cross. That you've always been faithful to your people. That you've always provided what they need. That you are fully able to give us not just what we need for ourselves, but what we need to complete what you've called us to do. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd fill us with an increased measure of faith so that we can live a life that is boldly countercultural, that we'd be able to live in the midst of a den of thieves as people who trust completely in your providence and give of ourselves selflessly when everyone else is trying to take. And Holy Spirit, for those that feel like they are on the cross next to you, that they have been found out, that they have been judged, and that they have been found guilty before not just a, an earthly judge, but the judge of heaven and earth. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you give them the strength to see who you are to see you as the spotless Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world, to die in the place of all sinners, and to take that sin from them. And Lord, I ask that you give them the boldness to look at you and say, remember me. I am guilty, but remember me. I throw myself at your mercy, remember me. And Lord, speak to their hearts and let them know that today they'll be with you in paradise. In Jesus' name.